All right, morning show with Anthony here on 92.9 and 96.9 EHM. Happy to have uh, one of my favorite authors of all time and a good pal of the show. Uh, David Brown is joining us. David, good morning. How are you, my friend? Pretty good, Anthony. How are you? Doing great. I have right here, you can hear it, a copy of uh, the new uh, book. Uh, I hear that tapping, that <laughs> tapping sound. Yeah. By the way, isn't it just, I, there's something, you know, I'm all for Kindles and, uh, and technology. I'm all for carrying 700 books with you down to the beach in Mexico and taking a vacation. I'm all for that. But there is nothing like just the feel of a good hardcover book, the, the smell of it. There's just, there's nothing beats that. Uh, I agree. I'm not going to argue with that. I like that feel myself. I'm old school. Um, I even think like things like covers and pictures look better <laughs> in print than they do on ebooks. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, they do. And this one looks yeah. this one looks beautiful, by the way. So the book is uh, no. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young: The Wild Definitive Saga of Rock's Greatest Supergroup. Uh, I love the title. I love the subtitle. I love the photo that you chose. Is there any significance to that yeah. photo? Well, it's from uh, the Fillmore East in 1970, uh, which was um, significant in that it was their last. Uh, it was it was the tour they did right after they put out Deja Vu in 1970. So it was it was the the big moment for them in the culture. Uh, Neil Young had just written Ohio, as Ken State had just happened. They were performing that song during the shows, and it was it was it was it was really the moment when they were just so plugged in to not just the group itself, but the, but the zeitgeist, you know, I mean, Deja Vu was a massive record, Ohio tapped into and, and was, you know, really uh, articulated what their generation was feeling that had just happened. And they recorded it quickly, put it out as a single right after Deja Vu came out. Um, they were, they were playing big halls. It all fell apart uh, for the first of many times right after that. But that that moment really kind of crystallized, and they were all they were working on all cylinders. They were just cranking out all these new songs. They were playing new songs live on stage that hadn't even been on record yet, like Neil was doing. Don't let it bring you, don't let it bring you down. And Stills was doing Love the One You're With, and these songs weren't even released yet. They were just like, hey, I wrote a new song. Let's play it on stage, you know. So it was quite a moment for them. It's unbelievable, you know. We talk about prolific times. I was just talking about Bruce Springsteen the other day. Uh, he's got the new album coming out, and he just said, oh, I wrote a whole E Street Band album, too, because it just kind of came to me. And we were talking about how artists that just kind of happens that even though the good, so even the great songwriters are even like, I don't even know where this came from sometimes, you know. So when those prolific moments hit, it's uh, it's something that you got to take advantage of. And it was kind of crazy that right. that was all happening at the same time for these four gentlemen. And it's still happening now. I mean, Neil Young just announced recently he's just cut a new album with Crazy Horse, yeah. which he hasn't done in, you know, seven, eight years at this point, uh, with Nils Lofgren now in the band. And um, they banged out like a dozen or so songs in no time. And yeah, it was like uh, two weeks or something crazy know. like that. Yeah, like two weeks. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and, and, it's, and it's a, that's a whole discussion here, but I mean, it is a fascinating new era. You know, we to see that generation of rockers still writing new songs as they're approaching 80. You know, <laughs> Some of these folks, you know, they're in their seventies pushing 80 and the previous generation, the Chuck Berry's and Jerry Lee Lewis's, um, some of whom are still with us like Jerry Lee. Uh, I mean, you know, they basically, you know, just began recycling the old songs hundred percent of the time, you know, 
in their thirties. You know, we didn't, he really didn't hear, um, you know, Chuck Berry released a new record right before or came right after he died. But I mean, that was, that was his first record in like 30 years, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's, to hear these old, this older generation of classic rockers actually writing new songs in their older voices is, is all new terrain. So it's it's really going to be interesting to hear. Yeah. All right. So David Brown is with us here. The book is uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, the wild definitive saga of rock's greatest supergroup. Uh, get more info on David Brown at David dash Brown with an E dot com. That's David dash Brown dot com. Um, my my sister stole uh, the Grateful Dead book that you wrote. <laughs> And my father was, uh, he came to visit a week or so ago. He was already eyeing up this thing. So I don't know how long I'm going to have this for. Um, uh, I think you better glue it to the coffee table or something. Yeah, seriously. I got to hide it. <laughs> my family members keep stealing your, your books. But we all love your stuff. But can I give you one criticism? All right. Okay. Go for it. If I was writing this book, I would have wrote, your ending was, meh. I would have wrote a different ending. I would have ended the book with them reuniting at Woodstock 50. But that's just me, David. <laughs> that's just how I feel. Uh, you know, that would have been great, but, um, well, Woodstock 50 itself looks iffy right now. And, and so far only Crosby has been signed up to do it. And, uh, you know, uh, it would have been nice too. you know, it would have been nice if they all got together, uh, and did a, um, a 50th anniversary, you know, final tour as a lot of these uh, folks are doing right now, these farewell tours. And when I started writing this book and working on it, which was three years ago, you know, I thought, oh, you know, maybe if it comes out in 2019, there'll be a little put. You know, who knows? Maybe they'll they'll be, get together for for that such tour. But yeah, it doesn't look that way. There's still not. Um, I think there's still a lot of uh, uh, lingering uh, animosity in that group, and and Neil is moving on as he always does. And so uh, yeah, it was a good idea. I, I wish I had that ending too, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> Other than they're all in their separate corners again. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's and and when you know and Woodstock 50 is where it is but uh even when that's when the rumors of that started coming together the first thing i thought of was like oh my god a csn like if i felt like if there was anything that could get this band back together it was Woodstock 50 but even that doesn't seem like it's possible it, it, you know and uh, michael lang who's the the guy behind Woodstock the original one and he's he's working on a new one i interviewed him uh, for this book about 3 years ago a little over two and a half years ago um, about their role in the original festival. He also booked them CSN for Woodstock 94. And so during the interview, I said, so, you know, you're going to do a Woodstock 50th. And he was, you know, at that point he was like, yeah, we're thinking about it. I want to do it. And, and even he said, I'd love to get these guys back together. And he had already at that point, two and a half years ago, put out feelers. And even then he said to me, like, I, I don't know if this is possible. <laughs> he said, There's a lot going on now. It doesn't look good, you know? So there, there was even a sense back then that uh, he definitely wanted to do it, no question. But um, it, it, uh, it may, have been, may have been too broken at this point. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the group itself, but I want to talk a little bit about the book, too, because, uh, you know, you mentioned two and a half years ago that you were working on this. I looked at the source notes, and I don't know if I've ever seen this before, but you have over 25 pages. <laughs> Of source yeah. material on that. I mean, you this this must have been a massive undertaking for you. Uh, it was. Um, you know, I try to do similar things with all my books, but I think in this case, you know, I relied on. I did a lot of my own firsthand interviews. 
I was able to get David Crosby and Graham Nash and then, you know, probably about a hundred or so of their associates from people like Judy Collins and Roger McGuinn and Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead, who spent a lot of time with them hanging out to former band members and managers and, and girlfriends, things like that. Um, but I also uh, spent a lot of time, as I always do, but in this case, particularly going back and reading old interviews with them, going back to the 60s, you know, old newspapers, forgotten old newspapers and things. And, you know, I felt like I, I, real, I wanted to include some of that material, some of the things they said in the moment, um, because they really, you know, there's so many fascinating things about them, but I think in a way they pioneered social media. You know, they were like basically dissing each other publicly, bef- you know, before there was a Twitter, you know, <laughs> they would just do it in interviews and, you know, they would just say things, you know, out front, how, how they felt about one another at particular times. Um, and, and I just hadn't seen much of that, you know, we're used to feuds in rock history, but I mean, this one, it was pretty open right from the start. And so I, I wanted to include a lot of that material and credit it to the, the original, you know, newspaper reporters and stuff back in the day. Um, so that kind of expanded it. And, uh, and you know, the other way that of course they also pioneered social media way was of course that they, they wrote songs about each other. Uh, sometimes explicitly and sometimes not. And that was another way that they kind of communicated with each other, uh, not directly, shall we say. <laughs> right. Well, it, reminds, it always reminds me, I hate to bring up this analogy, but you know the way people who work for the Trump administration sometimes go on TV and say stuff so, so, as a way to communicate with him because they know he's watching. <laughs> you know, And so like with CSNY, they would sometimes write songs about, instead of saying directly, here's how I feel, They'll, well, let's write a song about this. this is what's bugging me about you. Right. <laughs> Just they, put it on a record. They pioneered the, and, the, uh, uh, the diss track or the shade, the shade throwing on social media. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So they really, uh, you know, one of many ways they pioneered things, they kind of broke ground in rock as well as just their, you know, their singing and, and songwriting and, and just approach to being a group, which was unconventional from the start. Um, you touched on CSNY in Fire and Rain, which uh, was the first book that I, I came across of yours, and I, we always seem to kind of reference back to it. But um, that was more about the them, you know, sort of falling apart. Was was that the opening seeds of like I want to expand on this more? Did you feel like there was more to be done about CSNY after you wrote about them in Fire and Rain? I mean, I, I felt that way before I even wrote Fire and Rain, um, because I've been sort of tracking them since I was like a teenager, way back when. <laughs> I don't know if I want to say when that was. But, you know, uh, you know, I discovered their music when I was 13 through, through one of my older sisters and, and uh, you know, immediately was drawn into that world and on their group records, and they were already making solo records and duo records, and it was this whole uh, complicated musical family tree that I... Uh, hadn't quite, you know, seen anything like. And, of course, the one thing you realize right away, too, for those of us who've been following them for a long time, is uh, things were never quite stable. So, you know, I, I saw them for the first time as a trio, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Madison Square Garden in the late 70s. And I was like, wow, they're back together. They have a new album. Great. And then, like, you know, six months later, you read in Rolling Stone or one of the magazines, uh, they're broken up again. <laughs> Wait, what? Uh, and so, you know, I've been tracking this since then, and this whole saga has kind of been in my head and all this music, music they've made. And, and so I think, yeah, when I finished Fire and Rain, which was, of course, just about 1970, 
I thought that was so much fun to kind of write about them in that period. It would be nice to write about what happened before and, of course, what all, everything that happened afterwards. And, and there hadn't been too many books on them before. So I thought, you know, it felt like a good time to do that and to sort of tell the story that had been sort of um, knocking around in my head for, you know, for decades at this point and just to kind of be able to tell it was kind of ex- kind of exciting. Yeah. Uh, and what's cool is it, it's a story that like continues to evolve because it's not a story about a 70s group or I mean, their their story has ever evolved even up until a few years ago, you know, it is. And I think it's one of the things that's interesting and maybe people forget is that, you know, people do peg them as a 60s group or some maybe a 70s group. But, you know, they have sort of tapped into different things at the time, whether it was you know, Neil going techno in the 80s or, or uh, you know, discovering country music around that time or even when they did the last CSNY reunion tour, which was 2006, and Neil had written all those songs about the, uh, the Iraq war and George W. Bush. And he, so he got them all together again to do a tour playing those songs. And, and, and again, like they, they, they tapped into something, but, it, you know, the, I think a lot of their fans agreed with them, but there was a certain amount who didn't. And so, you know, when they would play those songs, like Let's Impeach the President, down at certain shows in the South, the audiences were not as responsive <laughs> and made themselves known and would boo and walk out. And and so uh, that, to me, was also really interesting to write about, as much as the early days, because here they were, they were older, they'd been through the wars themselves, they were back to writing political songs about current events, and not everyone was in tune with them, you know, a certain percentage of their generation was like, had, had, you know, gotten a little more conservative. And uh, that was, you know, I think that was a shock to them. And, uh, and, and it was really fascinating to write about that as well. And, you know, they, they, how they tried to remain relevant and, and saw this, the changes around them. Yeah. It's funny too, because it's one of the criticisms that I see from people on Woodstock, which is almost unfair to take internet criticism as anything these days, because all there is is criticism on the internet. <laughs> do people do that on the internet? I, I'm not aware of that. A smidge, a smidge from here <laughs> and there. Yeah, but uh, but a lot of people are saying like, you know, you can't replicate Woodstock. It, it is what it is. You know, you can't recreate that. But I'm kind of like, but but can't you remember it fondly? Like, can't you have you know, can't you can continue that torch a little bit? Seems like we're we're really distance distancing ourselves from being able to just do whatever and kind of trying to keep everybody in this little box all the time. Yeah. Um, I agree. I mean, it's, I mean, why not try to, I mean, I think to celebrate Woodstock at 50 sounds like a fine idea. Uh, if you blend, you know, the lineup is interesting. They have a lot of, assuming it happens, uh, they have enough of the surviving acts and, you know, a bunch of the new acts, uh, I think what's the problem is that you know everybody thinks back to Woodstock '99 and some other other attempts that were you know almost disastrous and you know it's just it's almost too bad that some of those previous ones happened if it was just uh, that sort of poisoned the well a little bit you know right Woodstock '99 with with uh, rioting and burning stuff and throwing you know it was, it was kind of messy so I think I think some of those memories are lingering in people's minds like, oh, God, they tried this already twice. And you had people throwing mud at Green Day. In <laughs> 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 and uh, uh, 
so I think I think people's uh, memories of it of the original one have been tainted a bit as a result of what uh, what's come after. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but you know, though, I, I'm trying to think back to '94. I don't know if I remember hearing all that. Oh, like oh, you can't do Woodstock again in '94. Like I feel like it that kind of went off without any issues, or, or, or I shouldn't say without any blowback in the beginning. There weren't. I mean, they, they, you know, it was a, it was a little messy at times, and there was some rain, and I, I, I think there were, you know, there were some there were some uh, issues here and there, but nothing, nothing uh, as bad as everyone predicted. And I think the blowback was that in '94 they had like corporate sponsors, they had expensive bottled water, right. you know, you had to buy the ticket prices were higher, you know, so there was there was some of that that they got the blowback for. But but looking back at that festival. Um, it was actually pretty impressive, you know. I mean, you had people like Green Day and and sort of Sheryl Crow and a bunch of acts like really kind of breaking out in a way. And I mean, you had Nine Inch Nails and and you know uh, and Dylan and um, it was funny. In my book, I wrote about you know CSN being part of that, and they they unfortunately were <laughs> I don't know who made this decision. I couldn't quite figure that out, but. Yeah, they were slotted in between the Rollins Band and Nine Inch Nails. I mean, it's hard <laughs> to imagine a worse slot <laughs> right. know, for for a group like that. You know, um, I guess they were trying to vary the pace, you know, a little bit. But um, but you know, I mean, as David Crosby told me, he said it was just like animals. He's looking out on stage, and people are trying to mosh to like their songs, which are not mosh pit friendly kind of songs. And he's, you know, <laughs> That's very one, one of their one of their road crew told me he had a he had an idea for that was is that um, he wanted them to play off the fact that they were the quote unquote old men of the festival. He he, had a, he suggested that they be rolled out on stage in wheelchairs by 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 nurses, women dressed as nurses, <laughs> and then of course they'd stand up and start playing. And didn't didn't go over well with the group, so they they did not do that. Oh, but that would have been good, though. That, that, they it would, would have been funny. When they popped out of the chairs, funny. the people would have went crazy for them. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's really good. I think Kurt Cobain did that, didn't he? Didn't he get wheeled out in a chair once? Uh, that does sound familiar. Right? Yes. I know he play, played uh, a whole show in a, in, a, in a hospital gown. I think he was wheeled out in a chair, though, for that show. I, I do. I think you're right about that. that I'm, I'm sort of picturing that image in my head, but when, when that was, I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, pretty funny. All right. I want to ask you what you... I always love asking you this because it's my favorite question for you, what you learned during writing this book. But I'm going to tell you what I learned first. Okay. What sure. I found to be pretty fascinating. I mean, and there's great facts. There's great stories. Like you know, the one good thing of, I could absolutely say a hundred percent, you paint wonderful pictures, you know, of scenes and you put us in places when things are happening, which I really, really love. But the one thing that I Thank guess you. I never really thought of was uh, something that you point out early on in the book. And that was that all of these guys, while they were trying to figure out what this was going to be, all had these like big insecurities about them. And that it was some mm-hmm. of those insecurities that helped feed their need to find one another. And that maybe, you know, ultimately led to some of their undoings. But I never, it's funny because like you always elevate rock stars, and, but I never really thought that they could be insecure people. But when you point it out in the book and you see some of that early forming together, uh, I think it was at the the Whiskey A Go-Go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like, that was to me like the refreshing thing of like, oh yeah, they're they're normal people too. 
they were coming from bands that were, you know, breaking up or, you know, who knew if they were still together or not. Or So there was like a lot of that insecurity that maybe even drove the start of this group, you know, because when you look at them now, it's like that's the super group, right? That's the first one. That's right. the greatest one. But it's kind of crazy to think of like these just little insecure people that were like looking for, you know, that that sort of, you know, backup from from their peers. Yeah, and and I that's something I learned myself as I as I researched it. Because um, yeah, you think they were all coming from different groups, and Stills was in the Buffalo Springfield, and Crosby was in the Birds, and, and Nash was in the Hollies, and you think, well, they were all successful to varying degrees, and and had their followings, um, and yet you know there was a certain you know Jerry Maguire, you know you complete me kind of aspect <laughs> to the group coming together that became more in focus as I as I talked to them and got more of a sense of their, uh, their situations at the time. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I think Graham Nash always kind of felt kind of uncool as a kid growing up north of London and he wasn't in hip London. He was in this little town part of Manchester and, you know, he just, um, uh, you know, kind of wanted to, you know, and he was in the Hollies who were a great pop band, but, but weren't considered hip and cool and cutting edge as much as I tried. And, and I think, you know, he looked at when he meets Crosby, it's like, you know, every Crosby in 1966, 67 was the epitome of, of, of rock cool. You know, he's the guy with the best weed and he had the, you know, the cool look about him with the mustache and the capes and all this. And, and, you know, that, you know, he, that really clicked with Nash in a way of like, Oh, you know, this is my entree into, into kind of feeling, feeling hip been cool and yeah. and same with the other guys and you know stills being a little insecure about his own singing and guitar playing which sounds ridiculous but wanting a both have having someone like a crosby who could be a real cheerleader type you know egging him on and telling him he was great and 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 crosby you know wanting wanting to you know more of a brotherhood situation for himself and feeling insecure about that. And, and yeah, these, these were just, these were just young guys trying to figure out what to do next. You know, like the, someone asked me, well, what brought them together? And, you know, unemployment is, 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 <laughs> is part of that answer too. You know, Crosby had just been booted out of the birds and he, 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 he was feeling like unwanted and, and, uh, Springfield had broken up and the Hollies were still together, but Nash wasn't happy with them. And, and, you know, they were all looking for, well, what, what do we do now? And it's just this, you know, this confluence of, uh, of, of people in a, in a period that, you know, just, you know, no one could have predicted, but it's just the way these things come together. Yeah, no, it's so true. I mean, but it's like, it's something that you don't think of, but it, you know, even, even in daily life, like even if, you know, you're not getting along with coworkers or, you know, your family members are being me. A lot of the times that's driven by insecurity, you know, and right. it's kind of crazy to think that it was even evident in, in a super group like this. Like you said, the voices, the singing, the songwriting, how could these people be insecure? But they really, really were, especially at the beginning. Right. And a lot of artists are, yeah. you know, uh, and in all fields, you know, <laughs> uh, God, you know, stand up comics, Jesus, you know. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, I think maybe we don't always think of musicians that way because they just seem like, so you see them on stage, they seem so confident, so, uh, in touch with themselves in some ways, but, uh, you know, these were, these were just kind of, um, 
yeah, these were just young guys trying to figure out that, you know, how, how to make a living, how to make their way in the world. And, you know, you also, you've got to remember back then, you know, no one knew if rock had a future, you know, it's hilarious to see interviews that say, you know, there's a famous interview with Mick Jagger in the mid sixties where he's asked, well, you know, what do you see as your future? And he's like, well, you know, I'll do this for a couple of years, but it's probably not a career. I don't know, figure out, you know, what happens next. No one thought you could have a, a long lasting career as a pop star. Yeah. Because it, it hadn't really happened yet. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It goes, and so it, there was a little bit of that probably driving them like, oh, you know, uh, what is my future? Right. Got to score it now while I can kind of a thing. But yeah, like, yeah. It, go, it goes back to what you said about, um, you know, uh, the early musicians and just playing their hits. And once you hit 30, like, that's it. You know, Chuck Berry and all those guys. It's true. Right. Nobody thought we'd still be, you know... You know, the the idea that if CSNY got together tomorrow and announced a tour, it would probably sell out in seconds was probably foreign to them 50 years ago. Right. You know. Um, all right. Uh, this has uh, been fun talking with you, David. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, the wild definitive saga of Rock's greatest supergroup. Was there anything? I mean, there's so much great stuff in there. The Bruce Springsteen softball thing. and Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of fun stuff in there. But was there anything else? Did, you said you learned some stuff. Did you? Any, I, I don't want to give away too much of the book because I want people to get it. But what was the right. other thing that you kind of learned while going through this little journey with the guys? Uh, boy. Um, you know, I think I learned a little more about how Neil came to join the group. And, you know, we, again, we see Neil Young now as this icon uh, who's certainly done very well on his own, doesn't really need any group, even though he kind of jumps around different combinations. But, you know, we forget, and I forget, that, you know, in 1969, he was a struggling solo act, you know. Um, and by the time the first CSN record came out, which was 50 years ago this month, that record did really well. But by that point, he'd put out two albums after the Springfield um, that were not commercial successes. You know, we all think of Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere and those songs, you know, Cinnamon Girl and, and Down by the River. These are classic Neil Young songs. But we forget, and I sort of forgot, that that record peaked at like number 125 on the Billboard charts, you know. And, and you know, so when this idea was floated of him joining them by the head of the record company, um, it, it, it benefited all of them. You know, CSN needed another musician to back them on stage, to boost their sound. But he needed the exposure. You know, it really benefited him a lot. You know, I think, I think in, as the years have gone on, we all think, well, they're, they're all waiting around for him to give the go-ahead to a reunion, which is totally true. But back then, he really needed them. And yeah. they needed him, and 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 uh, that kind of set the the, the the template, and and it and it and it worked, you know. Um, a after he joined that group, albums like Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere were suddenly hits. <laughs> you know, they had the second win, and he was suddenly part of a supergroup, which he wasn't before. So you know, that was really interesting to me to kind of you know just wade through all those stories and facts and try to piece together that timeline of when this all happened and how that that union benefited everybody in different ways including including neil yeah it's funny i never thought about that because it's true what you say you know so much time goes by where he's kind of in that power position you know you forget that that's right. like you said that's how it kind of started though yeah and you know and and even like you know before they 
settled on Neil, you know, they they were after, they were very confident. CSN were very confident in themselves from the start, and they needed you know they needed somebody else to you know play guitar or keyboards on stage, and they were even asking people like Steve Winwood, you know. And I said, to, I think it was during one of my interviews with Graham Nash, I said, you asked Steve Winwood to join the group as, as your backup musician? And he's like, he was just Steve Winwood back then. He wasn't like some superstar. Traffic had broken up. You know, he was looking for work. You know, <laughs> you know and you, again, you forget, yeah, these were just young guys looking for gigs, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, Dallas Taylor, who's the drummer who has since passed on, passed away, but I was able to interview him a few years ago. He remembers he and Stills going to London and making that offer to George Harrison. Wow. The studio. They ran into George Harrison in the studio. Like, hey, you want to join our band? Because the Beatles were falling apart, too. And so, you know, of course, George didn't really go for that. But, you know, uh, but again, it was just, you know, these were young guys looking for what's next. What do I do? What, what kind of work do I get? And, you know. Uh, groups are falling apart left and right, and and they were, you know, they weren't icons. Right. Well, I don't know yeah. if it's just because yeah. we're so used to saying CSNY, but I don't know if CSNH would have actually worked all that well. It doesn't sound that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's interesting, yeah, to envision that, you know, uh, how any of those combinations could have sounded. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Maybe Neil was the right way to go. <laughs> yeah, probably right. You uh, and you got to speak to Peggy for this book before she passed. I did get to speak to Peggy Young before she passed. Uh, very, very sad that she passed away earlier this year. And yes, she. Um, we spoke about, um, you know, her first memories of meeting the other guys and uh, and uh, being part of that tour in 2006. Actually, that was really interesting when when uh, when they were people were you know. Uh, not happy with those Bush songs and there were bomb sniffing dogs backstage and she remembered some of that stuff. And so, yeah, she, she brought, she brought some really interesting perspective and even seeing Donald Trump backstage and Neil Young shows, which she's with with this. (laughs) Yeah. We forget Donald Trump was a big Neil Young fan. Yeah. They had a falling out a number of years ago and, uh, Especially once Trump started using "Rockin' in the Free World" at his rallies, and Neil was not happy about that. But but there was this period when and and when Trump was really into Neil, and he would, in fact, I, in fact, in that 2006 tour that I mentioned, I saw that show here in New York at the um, the, the theater at the Garden. It's called now. It always changes names, but right. And 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 right there in the front rows were right near sitting right near each other were Salman Rushdie, Patti Smith, and Donald Trump. <laughs> One of the strangest combinations of celebrities at a show I think I've ever seen. <laughs> That's what CSNY does. They bring it all together. They, they do. You know, it's, a, it's, it's a, quite the rainbow coalition of uh, music fans there. Absolutely. All right, 50th anniversary of CSNY. So this is a great way to celebrate. If you have a uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young fan in your life, uh, this is an absolute perfect gift. Uh, David's a phenomenal writer, like I said, a fan of all of his books. Uh, david-brown.com brown is spelled with an e david-brown.com and you can get it at amazon and wherever else uh, books are available what else are you working on david so we know what to look out for in the future well uh have, have another book coming out in the fall anthony it's funny you asked wow. um i um look at you making the rest first, of us look I, bad jesus i, I know this, this is more of an editing job i have to admit uh but uh, my very first book back 18 years ago was called dream brother it was a dual biography of the late jeff buckley and his father tim buckley 
And coming this fall, I've worked with his mother, who runs his estate, Jeff's estate, to do a collection of his journals and writings that he left behind, and as well as various memorabilia contracts and paperwork that were left behind. And we've put that all together into a sort of uh, telling the kind of the story of his life, arranged it all chronologically, and uh, these you know, pretty beautiful, I think, reproductions of his of his journals. Uh, uh, he had very uh, very uh, lovely handwriting, so it's all very legible. So that's coming out in October. Wow! And now are you actually yeah. going to include some photos of the of the pages in the yep. book? Yep. I love uh, similar to say the Kurt Cobain journals book, if people know that. Right. Yeah. Right. So we've actually just reproduced the actual pages. Yeah. You know. Um, and it's called uh, Jeff Buckley, His Own Voice, and it will be out in October. Oh, I love that. There was something, yeah. who was it? It was Jeff Buckley's tour manager or somebody just wrote a book about him, and it was not well received by the family, from what I understand. Uh, it came out about, yeah, his former, one of his former managers um, wrote a memoir, came out about a year ago or so. Um, I, yeah, I don't think those two camps see eye to eye on a lot. Um I don't think the family issued any kind of public statement about it, but uh, and uh, I, I've only kind of skimmed it myself, so I, I can't even comment. But uh, I, was, I was in the middle of my own books. I was writing two books at the same time. I didn't have time to read that many and many other books, although I should catch up with that at some point soon. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you made some time for us this morning, David. I really, really appreciate oh, you coming. Always on. happy to support EHM, one of my favorite stations, keeping the free form, progressive thing alive, which is so important in this culture. Absolutely, my friend. Absolutely. This was a pleasure as always. Uh, I, th- I think we're good. Is there anything else that we yeah. got to cover? Uh, well, I, well, you got to let me come back in the summer and you know do some playlist stuff of my own. So Please do. Looking forward to. Yeah, let me know when you're here and, uh, and we'll set you up and we'll get you in here. Sounds good, man. All right, man. Thanks, Anthony. All right, there's my man, David Brown. Guy's a genius. Writes the hell out of books. Uh, great book on Sonic Youth. Uh, wrote so many roads on the Grateful Dead. Fire and Rain is the story of 1970, told through uh, CSNY, James Taylor, Simon and Garfunkel, and the Beatles. Uh, Dream Brother, which you just mentioned. Looking forward to getting that Jeff Buckley book now. And, of course, uh, the one that's available currently here, May 2019. This is the 50th anniversary of CSNY. And this book is already out. It came out last month. Uh, but we waited a month to uh, talk with David because we wanted to do it during the 50th uh, anniversary celebration. Uh, so, like I said, go out and grab that. Anywhere it's sold, books are sold, Amazon or in your local bookstores. Uh, indie bookstores tend to carry David's work a whole bunch. He's uh, the contributing editor to Rolling Stone magazine. So he's a big deal. He carries a lot of clout in the industry. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, the wild definitive saga of rock's greatest supergroup. Uh, we will put links up. So you guys can grab that. And uh, our thanks to David Brown for getting us a little bit closer to the music this morning. The Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young music right here on The Morning Show with Anthony.